we continue to focus on and think about the resurrection of Jesus, as I mentioned last week, Easter Sunday begins a five-week period of focusing on the resurrection on Easter. That's why we leave the white cloth on the cross out there for so long. All the way through uh, Ascension Sunday, and then uh, right after that will be Pentecost Sunday. And so we're going to kind of continue to think about this and focus on this because the Easter story is so amazing. It really can't be covered in just one sermon. The resurrection is the answer. It is the proof that Jesus is exactly who He said He was. It's the proof that He was more than just a miracle worker or a wise teacher or a, or a charismatic revolutionary leader. No, Jesus was and is the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, sent from the Father as our sacrificial lamb. The resurrection serves as proof that Jesus is the conquering King, the Lord of Lords, the risen, reigning, and someday returning King of glory. But some people today may wonder, does the resurrection of Jesus really matter today? Does it really make a difference whether I believe that Jesus literally, bodily rose from the dead or not? And, and if He did, how can I know that that is true? Timothy Keller answers that question and explains the significance and the weight of the resurrection. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that Jesus said. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then why worry about any of what He said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like His teaching, but whether or not He rose from the dead. That is the critical point. Now, we live in a culture today that's skeptical. It's particularly skeptical about the claims of Christianity, about the authority and reliability of the Bible, the existence of the supernatural and the miraculous. But you know what? The same was also true 2,000 years ago in the first century Greco-Roman culture. They were also skeptical. They saw death as an end. And the idea of resurrection or eternal life to them was seen as preposterous, as hopeful, wishful thinking, as superstitious. They had a hard time with that as well. In fact, in writing to the Corinthian Christians, Paul is faced with the shocking news that even some of the believers in Corinth were struggling with the idea of Jesus' resurrection and even their own future resurrection from the dead. This is the context in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul addresses how critical it is for us that Jesus bodily, literally, rose from the grave never to die again. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you also might want to mark John 20. We're going to be looking at both uh, Scriptures in both of these chapters. 1 Corinthians 15 and John 20. And as you turn to that, I'd like to lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for this morning, for the opportunity to once again study this powerful, significant moment in all of history that literally changed the way we think of reality. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our minds to your truth, that you would open our hearts to the convicting work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look at verses 14 through 19. You heard a good portion of it in our New Testament reading, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. We're going to drop on down to verse 14. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, 
then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be more pitied than anyone. Paul tells us the stakes, whether Jesus rose from the dead or not, the stakes are nothing less than our eternal souls. The idea of what might happen after death hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to tell us just how revolutionary this rising from the dead was, how it absolutely changes everything. It is the source of all of our hopes. Let's continue on in verse 20. He says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Afterward it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be abolished is death. Now, in a upcoming sermon, we're going to dig more deeply into this passage, but for now, Paul is telling us that Jesus' resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith, and without it, there would be no Christianity, there would be no church, there would be no New Testament, and we would have no future and no hope if there is no resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is vital to our faith, but beyond that, it is also a verifiable fact. The resurrection. It certainly matters. It matters that it's a historical reality more than any other event in human history. It was real. And it made a difference. It made a difference in Mary's life, moving her from anguish and tears to joy. It made a difference in the disciples' life, moving them from fear to courage. And as we heard, it made a difference in Thomas's life because it moved him from doubt to assurance. The resurrection matters. So turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 20. We looked at the first 18 or so of these verses last week. Let's drop down to verse 24. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them. When Jesus came. So that first appearance of Jesus in the upper room with all the disciples there, Thomas was absent. And so the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. You know how Missouri is the show me state? Well, Thomas is the show-me disciple. Just as we think of Judas representing betrayal and Peter representing denial, 
So Thomas represents doubt, right? We even call him Doubting Thomas. But really, Thomas's struggle here is more than just simple doubt. It's unbelief. And there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is an intellectual problem. If somebody is just having some doubts in their mind, their heart still wants to believe. Their heart yearns to believe, but it, their mind is just weighed down with skepticism, with maybe they're struggling with some cynicism. They've got some weighty questions that they're trying to wrestle through. Their heart wants to believe, but it also doesn't want to be disappointed. It doesn't want to be broken. We, we do a lot sometimes to kind of guard our hearts from being disappointed or broken. That's the doubter. Unbelief, however, isn't an intellectual or emotional problem. Unbelief is a spiritual problem. It is a problem of the heart, not the mind. And so someone who has unbelief, Hebrews 3.12 warns us against having a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Someone in unbelief are turning away from God. They are failing to believe. Doubt says, I don't believe yet, but I want to believe. Lord, help my unbelief. But unbelief says, I'm not going to believe unless you give me the evidence that I asked for. In fact, in the Greek here in John 20, 25, it's a double negative. So Thomas is literally saying, I positively will not believe. I mean, he doubles down in his belief. He's vehement about it. Why? Why is Thomas so wrapped up with unbelief? There's almost a taste of bitterness, a hint of anger in his voice. Maybe that's why he was not there the week before on that first Easter Sunday. Maybe that's why he had separated himself from the other disciples. It's tragic how unbelief can rob us of the blessings and the joys and the opportunities that are before us, how it can blind us to the truth and keep us mourning in sackcloth rather than dancing in joy. That's what Thomas struggled with for a week. This unbelief. And unbelief, if we cling to it, if we double down on it, becomes an idol in itself. Unbelief itself becomes an idol because everyone believes in something, right? I mean, everyone lives their life by faith. It's just what do you put your faith in? What is the object of your belief that makes the difference? For Christians, we put our faith, the object of our belief is the triune God as revealed in Scripture. But for the true unbelievers, the true just doubting, unbelieving skeptics, the atheists, the agnostics, they put their faith in themselves, in their ability to reason, in science, in the goodness of the human heart. Whatever it is they put their faith in, it's idolatry. Their unbelief for them becomes their God. But here's the good news. This is not the end. Unbelief is not the end. It doesn't have to be the final nail in the coffin. And so we pick up the story in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were indoors again. And Thomas was with them. This time he's with them. And even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom. He said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. 
So there's a glimmer of faith still in Thomas. There's a connection there with the other disciples that he's still hanging around, that he comes back. He doesn't walk away completely. Now there's a lesson here for us. As Hebrews tells us that we're not to to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. See, there's value in we, even if we're struggling with doubt, there's value in us coming together with other believers in Christ. And there's also a lesson here for us as Christians to never give up on someone because they've strayed away from the church or they're wandering from their faith. Don't write them off. The other disciples could have done that. They could have shunned Thomas. They could have written him off for his doubt, but they didn't. They were persistent in their message and they welcomed him back. And we have to do the same thing. We have to keep telling people about Jesus. Keep praying for them and loving them and reaching out to them because you never know. This is not the end of their story. They can turn from doubt and unbelief to true faith and assurance. We need to be like the disciples and not give up on those people. And so Thomas came and Jesus came. Jesus came, I believe, that day specifically for Thomas. And he met Thomas where he was. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't say, I find your lack of faith disturbing. He didn't do that. No, Jesus gave Thomas exactly what he needed, empirical evidence. And only then did he tell him to stop being faithless and believe. You see, sincere Christian faith has always welcomed sincere questions and honest research. True faith isn't afraid of doubt. True faith isn't afraid of people who are skeptical because true faith sees that doubt isn't the end of the conversation. It's just the beginning of the discussion. And this is why the New Testament itself gives us evidence of the resurrection. If we're going to answer the common objections people raise about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we need to present spiritual and historical evidence to them. We believe that Jesus is alive, not just because of our personal experiences, but because it makes the best sense of the available historical facts. The resurrection only can make sense of that. C.S. Lewis famously said that every person must decide if Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or the Son of God. And I think we can apply the same thing to these first century Christians who claimed that Jesus rose from the dead. Either they're lying They're hallucinating, they're crazy, or they're telling the truth. It has to be one of those three. Well, obviously, we believe they're telling the truth, right? I mean, that's kind of where we're starting from. We believe they're telling the truth. But let's think about those other two things. Were they crazy? Did they hallucinate all of this? Well, it's hard to believe that hundreds of people, 500 plus people, it's hard to believe they could have all hallucinated the same thing, right? That that seems a bit of a stretch. And it's hard to believe that they could all have consistent stories if they were all just kind of imagining this in their grief, you know. And that happens. People can. You can imagine that you see a loved one or you hear their voice when they're gone. But this is different. They didn't hallucinate a Jesus who is talking to them, eating with them, letting them touch Him. They didn't hallucinate that. And so no reputable scholar or historian today believes and the hallucination theory. That's been rejected. But what about the second possibility? That it's a hoax. The hoax theory. Was the story of Jesus' resurrection 
a well-concocted lie? Was it a grand conspiracy? I think this idea can appeal to a lot of people today because, like I said, we are a skeptical people, aren't we? I mean, in this age of AI-generated deep fake videos and pictures, in this day of fake news and media bias and politicians who, who change their tune depending on what audience they're standing in front of, as if we don't have YouTube and Twitter to go back and look at what they said, we have become skeptical as a culture because we've been let down so many times. But the problem with the hoax theory is that if the disciples did create this big lie about the resurrection, they were awful at it. They were terrible liars. They broke every rule we know about how to tell a good lie. So this morning I want to present to you five rules for telling a good lie. It's not every Sunday the preacher teaches you how to tell lies. But I want us to see how the resurrection of Jesus breaks every one of these. If this was a big lie, they were terrible at it. Okay, so the first rule of telling a good lie is you only want to tell a lie that benefits you. You only tell a lie that benefits you. Think about the times that you've lied in the past, and we've all done it, haven't we? You tell a lie because it benefits you in some way. There's an advantage to you. Or you tell a lie to avoid a negative consequence, right? You don't want to get in trouble, so you tell a lie. You blame someone else. You make something up. That's why we tell lies. Reminds me of the movie Catch Me If You Can, which is based on a true story of a young man who was a master con artist. He wrote over $40,000 in bogus checks. And this was you know, back in the 60s when $40,000 went a lot further. He masqueraded as an airline pilot so he could travel the country for free. He lied about a diploma that he got so he could get a job with the Louisiana State Attorney's Office. And he even masqueraded as a pediatrician in a hospital. And he did all of this to gain fame and fortune. So what did the disciples gain? If they had told a lie, if the resurrection was made up, what was the benefit to them? Well, let's think about how it benefited them. James, the brother of John, lost his head. Philip was beaten, imprisoned, and then crucified. Matthew was killed and then crucified for good measure. Mark was dragged to pieces behind horses. Bartholomew was beaten and crucified. Peter was crucified upside down. John was exiled to the island of Patmos. And Paul also was beheaded. So yeah, that really worked out well for them, didn't it? How many of us would be willing to die for a story we knew was fake? How many of us would stand by a lie that brought us nothing but ridicule, torture, and death? I wouldn't. And I dare say you wouldn't either. And on top of that, for these men who were Jews, for them to tell such a blasphemous lie was to bring down eternal wrath and damnation on themselves. Which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 explains what it would mean if they were lying. He said in verse 15, he said, More than that, we then would be found to be false witnesses about God. For we testified that God raised Jesus from the dead. So if they are lying, they're lying not just to people, they're lying about God. Would someone risk eternal torment for a few years of prestige as the leader of a new religion, one that brought you ridicule, torture, imprisonment, and death? I think not. There is no benefit 
No reason whatsoever for the followers of Jesus to tell and stand by a lie like that. Now, the second rule for telling a good lie, avoid specific details. Avoid, you want to tell as few details as possible. It's one of the cardinal rules for lying because the more details you give, the more elements of this web you weave, the easier it is to get caught in it, right? And we see this happen all the time with public personalities who are caught in some elaborate lie because they gave too many details. And we've seen this throughout, throughout the years. Uh, you know, they, they lied on their resume. They, they lied about a degree they got at a college at a certain year. Well, see, a, a certain diploma at a certain college at a certain year. You can go online and look that up. Or they lie about past job experiences, that they did this, that they did that. You know, we've had coaches before that have lied about stuff like that and lost their coaching jobs because, again, all that's easily verifiable. The more details you give the easier it is to get caught in your lie. We see this with politicians all the time, especially if they're on the campaign trail, right? They go out there and depending on the audience they're talking to, they start to tell these stories or they exaggerate stories. They talk about these places they've been or these things they've done or this person they met. And then later on you find out none of that ever happened. It was all made up. The gospel accounts of the resurrection are filled with specific details, places, names, dates, For example, in Mark chapter 15, it says, When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him and wrapped him in the linen, and then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. So Joseph of Arimathea was a well-known member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, sort of the Jewish religious supreme court. If he didn't have anything to do with the body of Jesus, with requesting it from Pilate and wanting to prepare and bury the body of Jesus, if he didn't do any of that, he could have easily debunked this story and said, Hey, y'all, I never did this. Never happened. I never wanted to follow this Jesus. He could have said all of that, but he didn't. And if Jesus was buried in a tomb owned by someone like Joseph of Arimathea, people would have known where that tomb was. They could have gone there and seen for themselves if it was empty or not. If you're making this up, why get that specific with the details? Thinking about the tomb of Jesus, also it was customary in the first and second centuries that if there was a holy man, somebody that you revered, it was customary to go to their place of burial as a meeting place to to honor and to talk about this individual. We have no evidence whatsoever that the early Christians ever worshipped Jesus at a tomb. In fact, the church of the Holy Sepulchre wasn't even built until the fourth century. We have no evidence of the early Christians revering a place of Jesus' death. Rather, they revered a day of His resurrection. The focus wasn't on a place. It was on a day. And it was dramatic that these Jewish followers changed their focus from Saturday, the Sabbath day, to worshiping together on Sunday. And why did they make that change? Because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15... Paul invited scrutiny by mentioning by name 
all these different people that Jesus met to after His resurrection. Paul is daring the skeptics to find these people and ask them if it's true. And you have to remember, Paul is writing his letters only 15 to 30 years after the events of the Gospels, which he says most of these people are still alive. Up to 500 people. These eyewitnesses would have been available for anyone to question. Plus, as, as ridiculous as it is to think of 500 people hallucinating Jesus, it's also ridiculous to think of 500 people all sticking to their story if it was a lie that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, just us in this room, if we all agreed on some preposterous lie and it was starting to land some of us in hot water, do you think all of us in this room would stick to it? I don't trust you all that much. In a similar way, Luke told his friend Theophilus, the recipient of his gospel in the book of Acts, in Acts 1-3, he said that Jesus gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. So again, Luke is inviting Theophilus and anyone reading his letters to find these people that Luke mentions by name in his letters and to ask them, are these things true? Did these things happen? Again, you would only do that if you were telling the truth. A third rule for telling the good lie is you want to find credible, reputable people to back up your story, right? If you're telling a lie and you need some credible source to back you up, you're not going to go find an ex-con. You're not going to go find a drug dealer or a car thief. You're not going to go, you know, find some, you know, uneducated person or a small child to be your big, you know, person that's going to back you up. No, you want a highly credible, reputable witness to corroborate your claim. Yet who do all four Gospels claim were the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb and the risen Jesus? Women. Women. Look with me at Luke chapter 24. I think this is up on the screen. Luke chapter 24. Listen to verses 9 through 11. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. The they there is women. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. I love this part. But the words seemed like nonsense to them, and they didn't believe the women. And, And ladies, no offense, but that's kind of the way all men thought of what women said back then. It was all nonsense. It didn't make any sense to them. And they didn't believe anything they said. In Jewish culture, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. It was not a credible witness. So to hang the story of Jesus' resurrection only on women invited suspicion and prejudice and even was a source of embarrassment for the early church. If it was all made up, why would you choose women as your witness? Why would it not have been Peter and John to be the first ones at the tomb that morning? That would be a much more believable story. A fourth rule for telling a good lie, anticipate those inevitable, pesky fact-checkers, right? I mean, you think about politicians today and almost any presidential debate or even just a a speech that somebody gives, you've got people online and in the media that are fact-checking them, trying to find out the truth and expose them for being liars. And so politicians and their speechwriters have to work hard to make sure that their claims and their stories can't be easily debunked. Well, the disciples may not have had media fact-checkers or Twitter people or investigative journalists, but you know what they did have? They did have the Roman Empire and the Jewish religious establishment. The fact-checkers in their day had a very personal agenda to squelch any false religious movement around this Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus was a direct threat to their social status, to their political power, to their religious beliefs. A risen Jesus was even a greater threat. So if they went to all the trouble they went to to discredit Jesus, arrest Him, accuse Him, torture Him, and publicly execute Him, don't you think they would even go to greater lengths to debunk this idea that Jesus rose from the dead? But guess what? They never did. They never did. They never disproved the resurrection. They didn't even try to disprove the resurrection. C.S. Lewis says that we are often guilty of chronological snobbery. And what he means by that is that we're guilty of thinking that we're so much better, so much smarter, so much more sophisticated than the people that came before us. Right? And so what people today will say is that well, these ancient people back then, they readily believed anything. Right? They, they, they would have picked up the National Enquirer and believed every word of it. Now, they, just, they were superstitious. They didn't have all the scientific evidence we have. So, of course, they believed this stuff. But nothing could be further from the truth. People 2,000 years ago in, in Palestine were just as skeptical of the miraculous as people are today. In fact, to all the major worldviews of Jesus' day, including the Jews, the idea of someone physically rising from the dead was not only inconceivable, it was offensive. To the Roman mind, the body and physical matter were evil. They were no good. Only the spiritual world was good. So for the Romans, death was seen as a liberation from the confines of this material world. Death was a good thing. And no soul so freed from the body would ever want to come back into it. That was beyond their wildest imagination. And so this made Romans skeptical of the claims that Jesus was God and that His teachings were inspired because if that was true, why would He want to come back from the dead? Why would He want to spend eternity in a body? So this made the claims of Christianity offensive to the Romans, inconceivable. To the Jewish mind, shalom, Wholeness was the end goal of life. They believed that the body and the spirit were both good. And they, 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 should, they belonged together. That God created us as physical bodies with spirits in them, right? He breathed into Adam the breath of life. He became a living flesh. So they see that as a good thing. So most Jews, not the Sadducees, but most Jews believed in the resurrection. They believed that at the end of time, on the day of the Lord, that all would come rising from the dead and the world would be made right. But what was foreign to the Jewish mind was the idea that any one person would rise from the dead before the day of the Lord. That no, if somebody's going to rise from the dead, we're all going to rise from the dead. That Jesus alone had risen from the dead never to die again was not part of their theology. So the gospel accounts go against both the Jewish and the Roman ways of thinking. But you see, the resurrection of Jesus is a twofold event. There is an empty tomb and personal encounters with a living Jesus. Jesus was raised bodily from the grave, alone. He's the, he's the first fruits, as Paul says. He's the first one to rise from the dead, never to die again. And that makes him unique in human history. Now, if there had only been an empty tomb and no personal encounters, then we could buy this hoax theory, right? That Jesus' body was stolen away by His disciples and they made up these stories. Because there's an empty tomb, but nobody claims to have seen Jesus. If we only had the people claiming to see Jesus, but there was no empty tomb, there's a body in there, 
then we could buy the hallucination theory. Now, these people are just in their grief have just imagined this. But the fact that we've got both an empty tomb and these hundreds of eyewitness accounts of Jesus alive to them, that changes everything. That means that the only logical conclusion is our third choice, that they're telling the truth and Jesus did rise from the dead. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, only if the two factors, an empty tomb and personal sightings, only if they were both true together would anyone have concluded that Jesus was raised from the dead. There's one final rule telling a good lie I want to mention, and that is that when your lie is exposed, when you're found out, you save your own skin. Right? When, when push comes to shove, you save your neck. Because no lie is perfect. Eventually, every lie will be exposed. And when that happens, you want to minimize the fallout by blaming other people, by throwing your co-conspirators under the bus. We see this in politics and business, right? Some corruption is uncovered. And what happens? Some low-level manager gets fired. Some director you don't know resigns. We call them the scapegoats or the fall guys. You know, you've seen it on TV when you've got in these police procedurals, you've got two suspects and they're both arrested. And they're each taken to separate interrogation rooms and they're interrogated separately. And, and, they're, and they're given a deal. Hey, if you'll confess what the other one did, if you'll turn him in, we'll give you a break. And inevitably that happens, right? One of them is going to give up the goods on the other to save himself from some horrible consequence. But guess what? None of Jesus' disciples ever cut a deal. When Peter faced torture and crucifixion, he never turned on the others. Philip never threw Matthew under the bus to save himself. There were no last-minute confessions, no public recantations denouncing the resurrection as a hoax. Would you be that committed to a lie gone bad? Would you be that committed to your story if it meant death? There were numerous messianic movements in the decades surrounding Jesus. You'd have some would-be Messiah that would rise up, gain some followers, and end up being executed. Never once did any of these other so-called Messiahs, never once did their followers claim that that person rose from the dead. Never once. In fact, either the movement would just fade away or they would find another leader. So why then would the disciples of Jesus have concluded that His execution was not, a, was not a defeat, but was a triumph. Why would they do that? Why would they claim He was risen, reigning, and returning and risk their lives for it unless they had seen the living Jesus? It's the only thing that makes sense. You know, we're too quick to assume all the burden of proof when it comes to this. You know, the, the, the skeptics... There needs to be some onus placed on them as well. I, I mean, yes, we have a responsibility to do our best to, to prove the resurrection of Jesus as a historical, literal reality. But you know what? Skeptics also need to come up with some historically feasible alternate explanations for things like the birth of the church, the rapid spread of Christianity in the first century, the transformation of these disciples from cowards who ran to save themselves the night Jesus was arrested to men, every one of them willing to lay down their life and die because they believe Jesus is alive. What made that change? What transformed them? The skeptics need to give us an answer to that. 
They need to be able to explain away the amazing internal consistency of the biblical story, its preservation for two millennia, and its continued validation by archaeology today. How do you explain the Bible if it's not true? First century people would have had just as hard a time accepting a risen Christ as people do today. But as these people allowed the evidence to challenge their way of thinking and to change their worldview, thousands upon thousands embraced the risen Christ, even though it meant expulsion from the synagogues, isolation from their families, prison, ridicule, losing their livelihood and death, they believed in the risen Jesus. The only way the church could have so dramatically grown early on with so many Christians willing to be persecuted is if the eyewitness testimonies of these people was true. Logically and historically, I believe the resurrection of Jesus is not only possible, it's not only probable, it's provable. And listen, I've only scratched the surface. I've kind of just presented you some logical reasons to believe this. There is so much historical evidence, archaeological evidence, other extra-biblical accounts and writings that lend credibility to the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I believe that we can answer any objections, any skeptics with confidence and with conviction. And I encourage you to do even more research. Listen, every person that I know of And there have been some very popular people that over the years have been skeptical of the claims of the resurrection. Uh, Dug into it. You know the story of Lee Strobel, right? The the case for Christ. Anybody like that that's dug into and researched this have all to a person found themselves believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The guy that authored Ben-Hur was very similar in that. But there's some evidence that's more important and more convincing, I think, than even the historical and the logical evidence, and that's the personal evidence. That's the evidence that you and I can give. You see, people can still try to debate and argue the points I've made today, but no one can discount your personal experience with the living Lord and Savior. It's like the song we sang this morning says, You ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart. I know the risen Jesus. I know He lives. Our personal testimonies can be powerful evidence of the reality of the risen Christ. Because Jesus still speaks. He still saves. He still changes people today. He still hears and answers prayer. He works in us and through us. He speaks to us. He guides us. He gives us peace. He gives us joy. Jesus is real and at work in my life. Is He real and at work in yours? So I want to read one final couple of verses here, the end of Thomas's story. Jesus has appeared. He's challenged him to reach out and to touch the wounds and stop being faithless and believe. And in verse 28, Thomas responds to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me and you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Thomas quickly transformed from this harsh, bitter skeptic to a willing worshiper. It's a reminder that unbelief doesn't get the last word. It's not the end. That it can become convincing, true, saving faith. So don't ever think because you or someone you know is, is, is wrapped up in unbelief that they are beyond saving. Listen, Thomas is the first person in all four of the Gospels. He's the first one to declare, My Lord and my God. 
So he doesn't just intellectually buy into the premise that Jesus is Lord and God. No, he makes a personal confession of faith. Jesus is Thomas's Lord and Thomas's God. And what made this difference? What convinced him to change his heart and mind? It's not that he investigated the evidence. Nowhere does John tell us that, it, that Thomas actually did touch Jesus. No, Jesus offers that. And what does Thomas do? He immediately falls on his knees in worship and surrender. My Lord and my God. It wasn't that Thomas reached out and touched Jesus. It's that Jesus reached out to Thomas. That's what changed him. Listen, this same Jesus is here this morning. He's reaching out to you. He wants to reveal Himself to you as the risen, reigning, and someday returning King. He wants to touch your hardened heart. He wants to remove your unbelief, to break through the walls of bitterness or pride or hurt or anger that you've built up around your heart. Will you let Jesus come into your heart and reveal Himself to you this morning? Will you cry out, I want to believe, help my unbelief? Listen, if you've never confessed Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, then you can do that today because Jesus is here. Jesus stands before you just as much as He did before Thomas. And He can transform your heart and life as well. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and your God, I pray you'd come this morning as we sing in a moment. Give your heart and life to Jesus. Let Him change you the way He changed Thomas. Maybe you're like Thomas in a different way. You're a Christian, but you've grown a little distant, a little disconnected from church, like Thomas did from the other disciples. You're, you're not here as much as more than you're here. You're not involved in serving or growing or being a part of what God is doing in this church and the community. Maybe to you this morning, God would have you just to recommit yourself to this church to recommit yourself to other disciples, to do life with them, to grow with them and serve with them. Maybe God is calling you to join this church, to unite with us and be a part of our family. Again, as we sing in a moment, I hope you'll respond. But, but there's one more thing I want to say, is that maybe what God is saying to you this morning, maybe He's brought a Thomas to your mind. Maybe there's someone in your life like Thomas that you've written off, you've given up on. They're skeptical, they're doubtful, they're unbelieving. Uh, you've tried, you've invited them to church, you've tried to share your faith, all to no avail. Listen, renew your commitment to pray for them, to love them, and to patiently keep telling them about the risen Jesus. Tell them, like the disciples told Thomas, we have seen the risen Lord. Because you never know that that conversation might be the day that Jesus reaches out to them and they're changed. Let's stand together and pray. Whatever the